kind of working through how to continue some momentum and whatnot, and I think we'll stick with the, the Gospel of John. Wayne was in to see me uh, this week, and I said, Wayne, I think we're going to have to make our services longer. And he kind of scowled at me a little bit, I think. I think that was a scowl. But uh, he, all of a sudden you have pictures, and you have places, and you have things that you want to describe, and uh, it really is something else, which is again why I think we're going to gear that towards Wednesday nights. But I am going to try and incorporate... Um, a little bit of here or there. I mean, um, the feeding of the 5,000 is on the hillside around Bethsaida, Bethsaida, Bethsaida um, region and whatnot. So we were in that region, so we'll have a couple pictures for that. But um, last week we looked at a, uh, uh, just a brief, last week, three weeks ago, four weeks ago, we looked at a brief statement. Believing the Bible to be true is not faith. Right, and that's kind of resonating, you know, your conversations with Raquel, who, oh yeah, this is this book is true, right? I, mean, I don't think she'd go as far as to say that it's without error, but she believed the Bible to be true, right? But she didn't have faith, right? She doesn't know the Messiah. She made a joke there about um, when the Lord returns or when the Messiah comes, right? How? Okay. When the Messiah comes, how will you know if it's the Jewish Messiah or the Christian Messiah? And Raquel says in her own Jewish way, well, it's easy. You just ask him if he's been here before. Right? Because the Jew doesn't believe the Messiah has come yet, and the Christian, we believe that he's been, and then he's coming again, right? So it really kind of resonating. You know, believing the Bible to be true, right? Or believing the Bible to be true isn't necessarily faith. And then this um, statement for this, this week is going to be, Believing in who Jesus was is not having faith in who Jesus is. Okay, let me just say that one more time. Oh, we can read it. Believing in who Jesus was as a story, historic account, is not having faith in who Jesus is today. Right? Who Jesus is in your life. Who, who Jesus desires to be. And uh, we, won't, we won't try and complicate that too much. But uh, let's pray and we'll get into to the text here. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we again, we thank you that you're in our midst. Lord, we thank you that your spirit is, is, even as we speak, preparing our hearts to read your words, read your truth. Lord, read, read these, these words from you that are, are, are speaking, they're alive, they're powerful. Lord, I pray that that's the case this morning. I pray that these aren't stories, these aren't things that we've read once or twice, or maybe a hundred times in our lives. I pray as we're reading them this morning, we're asking you to speak to us, Jesus, today. And I pray that uh, that would be ever, ever more clear. Just pray that you would use me as I teach. Precious name. Amen. Believing a story to be true is not faith. Believing in who Jesus was is not having faith in who Jesus is. Saving faith is real. Right? Anybody there that's placed their faith in Christ and, and, and you know you've been redeemed, you know you're a child of God, it is real. A relationship with Christ is real. It's alive. Right? And sometimes we know that it may get stagnant if we close this book and, and we find ourselves wandering from prayer, but, but we know that our relationship with Christ is real. It's not something that you just know about. Right? It's not knowledge. It's not just, just something that you can talk about. It's real. And as we step into to John chapter 6, um, 
It's very, very much the case. This isn't who Jesus was. This is who Jesus is. Um, just real quickly, um, as we step into some context, okay? And if we remember back, and again, I'm sorry, it's, it's almost uh, well, it's four Sundays ago, um, but Jesus has obviously left Jerusalem, right? John chapter 5, if you have a red-letter Bible there, there's, there's a whack of here as He's standing before the Sanhedrin um, in Jerusalem, declaring to them who He is. Okay, um, Six months has passed since this time. Jesus is now in the Galilee. And six months is maybe not a, a long time. But when you begin to consider, Jesus only ministered for three and a half years. That's a big chunk of time. There's a lot of things that took place in between John chapter 5 and John chapter 6. Here in this passage, and we're just going to be looking at verses 1 to 14, we are one year from Calvary. Right? We're, we're past that pendulum here. There, he's, he, he's about to set his eyes for Jerusalem, and there's nothing holding him back. This, this story of the, the story, narrative of feeding of the 5,000, is the only sign threaded through all four Gospels, right? which really should open our eyes to the importance of it. Right? Each one of these men, whether they were first-hand witness like Matthew and John were, or, or they were hearing it from Peter like Mark was, or Paul as, as Luke did his, his research, I mean, there, there's a significance here. Um, so we're in John 6. Just very quickly, um, turn with me to Matthew 14. And this is more just so that we can get a, a visual and we can go back to it at a later time. Matthew chapter 14. Just trying to, to lay the, the, the scene here. Um, we know at this point John the Baptist has been beheaded by Herod Antipas. All right? And when you start doing some digging, this Herod Antipas, the, the, the ruler of, of, of Galilee and Perea, He's looking for Jesus at this point. There's a lot of politics going on, and that's where we'll be next week. But verse 13 lays the scene um, for John chapter 6 in the feeding of 5,000. It says, when Jesus heard it, okay, this is John the Baptist's um, execution, he departed from there by boat to a deserted place by himself. But when the multitudes heard it, they followed him on foot from the cities. So here we can incorporate into our understanding of John chapter 6 that, that Jesus is looking for a place to grieve, right? Because he's fully man, fully human. He had those emotions, right? Um, the apostles had just brought back the news. Um, turn with me to Mark chapter 6. And we'll just read a, a couple different, different verses. And again, um, each one of these writers of the Gospels couldn't include everything, but they each add Add to, to Scripture. Verse 30 says this. Mark chapter 6. Then the apostles gathered to Jesus and told Him all things, both what they had done and what they had taught. Right? And this is telling me that the, the twelve apostles had been sent out on their first missions trip. Right? And they're coming back. And I can only imagine the excitement all the different things that they'd experienced and discovered. And he said to them, come aside by yourself to a deserted place and rest a while. 
So you've got a hurting heart. You've got some excited apostles that are, have just experienced the power of, of, of serving in Jesus' name. So they departed, verse 32, to a deserted place in the boat by themselves. But the multitude saw them departing, and many knew him and ran there on foot for all the, from all the cities. They arrived before them and came together to him. And it's in verse 34. I really want to point out something. And Jesus when he came out, saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion for them because they were like sheep not having a shepherd. So he began to teach them many things. Here you have, and we know the story, 5,000 men, sheep without a shepherd, recognizing there's something different about Jesus and Jesus having compassion on them and teaching them many things things all right Luke chapter 9 this will be the last pit stop before we we get into Luke chapter 9 tells us the place and that being said maybe we could skip ahead Michaela to a couple of those pictures yeah I'm not sure whether you can kind of start seeing the rolling hills it's a lot like New Brunswick only the hills are a little bit bigger right uh, there's a, a little bit more of the, the mountainside. This is a little bit south of that region, but it gives you the, the idea. I think there's one more. Yeah, that's taken out there. It, the, the, you have the, the Sea of Galilee on the one side. You have these rolling hills going up. There really is only certain roads and paths that you could walk on, right? Um, verse 10 of Luke chapter 9. And the apostles, when they had returned, we know where they returned from the missions trip, told him all that they had done. And then he took them and went aside privately into a deserted place belonging to the city called Bethsaida. Right, and again, um, our Wednesday night studies will have a lot more because we spent an afternoon walking through the streets and, and, and looking at several of the miracles that were done there. But, but when the multitudes knew it, they followed him and he received them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God. Right? You've got the, the, the Israel, those 5,000 men and their families there like sheep without a shepherd. You've got Jesus teaching them many things, teaching them about the kingdom of God. Jesus had come to bring a spiritual kingdom, right? And we have these people looking for, for leaders. And he healed those who had need of healing. So this really is, it, it is a neat way of just laying the, the basis for John chapter 6. So turn back to John chapter 6 and we'll... We'll step into this this morning. We understand a little bit what's going on. One last little note there is that um, the town of Bethsaida ended up rejecting Jesus and his message. Right? Chorazin and Capernaum, they, they did not believe, they did not accept him as the Messiah. So as this, verse 1 of John chapter 6, After these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. Neat little thing, the first... Um, place that we stayed uh, in, in Gev. You could see Tiberias across the Sea of Galilee. Right? It really kind of resonated. These places aren't that far apart. Then a great multitude followed him because they saw his signs, which he performed on those who were diseased. And Jesus went up on the mountain, one of those hills, and there he sat with his disciples. Verse 4, Now the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was near. Then Jesus lifted up his eyes and seeing a great multitude coming toward him, he said to Philip, 
Um, Bethsaida was Philip's hometown. Where shall we buy bread that these may eat? But this he said to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one of them may have a little. And one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish. But what are they among so many? Then Jesus said, Make the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so that the men sat down in a number of about 5,000. And again, with that point, you've got 5,000 men, you've got wives, you've got women, you've got children. It's probably closer to 10,000. This is a, a big group of people. Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to the disciples, and the disciples to those sitting down. And we remember from a, a several weeks ago that a disciple isn't just talking about the twelve. It's talking about followers of Jesus. Right? Those that have been listening to his message and, and they're, they're inquiring, they're desiring to hear more. I often wondered how, how those twelve would have fed 10,000 people. Right? But the, it was a follower of Jesus. And likewise of the fish, as much as they wanted. Verse 12, So when they were filled, he said to his disciples, Gather up the fragments that remain, so that nothing is lost. Therefore they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves which were left over by those who had eaten. And without running out of steam, we come to verse 14. And verse 14 there is, is one of the most powerful verses I've read and quite some time. Right? You've, got, you've got this multitude of people. They've had their physical needs met. They're, they're being introduced to who Jesus is. And it says this, Then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, This is truly the prophet who has come into the world. This truly... Here you have 10,000 people with eyes that are being opened to who Jesus is. Right? Not who Jesus was. Not, not, a, not a story. Not a narrative. Not something we're familiar with. This is who Jesus is. This truly is the prophet who has come into the world. Couldn't help but think when I was doing some reflecting. I, I wish this would happen in our churches. Right? I wish that in our churches we would come to that place where, where we would stop sharing who Jesus was and begin testifying as to who Jesus is in our lives. What he, He's done this past week. But for some reason, when it comes to that question of being asked, who is Jesus in your life? There's silence. There's silence. There's, there, there's 10,000 people, 5,000 men going this truly is the prophet. If you don't believe me that there's silence, right? when you think about, about this, this is who Jesus is as an answer, try asking these questions at lunch today. Try asking these questions at lunch today. It's testimony time. It would be like me taking the microphone out into the, the seats this morning. Right? I, I, the panic ensues. It, it's just something I'm not ready to testify of who Jesus is. Ask these questions at lunch today. Who is Jesus to you today? Right? Not a testimony of what he's done in the past. 
Not something there, not, not, not your salvation as awesome as it is when you entered into, into that life with Christ. Who is Jesus to you today? What is He saying to you today? How are you being changed? How is He seen as your, your first love? And as I thought about those men sitting there going, this truly is the prophet. This truly is the Jesus we've been waiting for. It really gripped my heart. Because right? I haven't always been able to give that answer. I haven't always been able to, to be that excited about who Jesus is. I haven't always been able to say, you know, I can, the only way I can make it through what lays ahead is because I know who Jesus is. But I'm thankful that God has brought me to that place. Believing in who Jesus was is not believing who Jesus is. As the Apostle John, who's, who's writing this book, is moved by the Spirit to write these words to the early church, right? A.D. 90. Um, Jerusalem has fallen at this point, right? Judaism is, is scattered. Christians in the church have dispersed. Persecutions are, are being faced. I think of, of just the people that are receiving this testimony as to who Jesus is. Satan has at least two philosophies introduced, put before them. Two, two philosophies that deny that Jesus is the Son of God and deny that you need spiritual life in Him. Right? There at least two philosophies. I mean, and that's a, a, such a direct connection to us today. There are so many different movements and denial of truth and postmodernism and atheism. It's just a, a, a word that we throw around casually that says you don't need to be uh, recognized that you're a sinner. You don't need to be saved from your sin. You can be sorry for it. You don't need to believe that Jesus shed His blood on the cross. Um, you don't need to believe that that's the only way that you can have a relationship with God and go to heaven. As John is writing these words to this third generation church, he is saying this is who Jesus is. Hence the theme. Right? And we remember the theme verse of John. John 20, 31, right? These things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. Part of me got hung up on that third generation church. And I think maybe some of you picked up on it the last time we were in John there last year. Right? Third generation church, 60 years after Jesus is crucified, is already asking, who was Jesus? 60 years after Calvary, they're already asking those questions, looking around, how do we really know? How do we know this was the Son of God? Right? How, how can we know for sure? Some were already questioning faith with roving eyes looking around elsewhere. For three generations, they'd heard about signs and miracles. Right? The stories. The, the stories that, that, that our Sunday school um, teachers teach. The, Sunday, or the stories that our children hear. For three generations, they'd heard what Jesus did. Even the seven signs of, of John, again, with Jesus turning the water into wine and the healing at Bethesda. And we have here the feeding of 5,000 and Jesus walking on water, healing the blind man, and then, and then raising Lazarus from the dead. They knew these stories. They'd heard what Jesus did. They knew what Jesus did physically, but they were not 
making that spiritual connection to why Jesus did these things. They were not making the spiritual connection to who Jesus is. And that's the same problem we have today. Right? We, have, we have many that know the stories. We have many in our, our lives that say, yeah, we believe that Jesus is the Jesus of the Bible. We, we believe in who Jesus was. But when you look at their lives, you have those conversations with them, they don't believe in who Jesus is today. They've joined the world in its philosophy. Believing in who Jesus was is not having faith in who Jesus is. Just a direct question this morning when I'm thinking about who John is addressing in this third generation church. This isn't just another miracle to prove that Jesus did this. He's presenting that this is who Jesus is. How long does it take a generation to spiritually disconnect when they don't know who Jesus is? How long does it take a generation just to, just to, to step away? No longer be seen in, in church, right? Because they don't know who Jesus is. No longer um, to be heard in worship. Silence during our time of singing. Silence during our time of sharing. Silence during our time of prayer. How long does it take a generation to disconnect when they don't know who Jesus is? Prayer meetings not even on their radars for their Christian walks. Um, evangelist service, uh, not part of like, the fruits of faith, not even understood. Evangelism, I just put on there, is just a dictionary word. They don't even know what that means. How long does it take a generation to disconnect when they don't know who Jesus is? John must have seen what we see in churches today. John in his Gospel gives us seven signs and seven I am statements to show us who Jesus is. Not who He was. Because who Jesus is changes us today. Right? And I, I mean, I, I, I could take the rest of the service just explaining how He's changed me. How He reprimands me. How He catches me there when I'm about to, to step into something that I really shouldn't. Right? It, it, it's, I can't. We sang a song earlier. I can't imagine being without him. I'd be hopeless, lost. Right? That's who Jesus is in my life, not who Jesus was. The sign in Cana, John chapter 2, we remember the beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana and Galilee, manifested his glory, and the disciples believed in him. Each sign bears witness that he is God's Son. Each sign that we read in the Gospel of John is bearing witness of who Jesus is. The sign of Bethesda, Bethesda John chapter 5. Jesus stood before the leaders and He didn't explain who He was. He told the spiritual leaders of Israel who He is. That He is the, the Son of God. That He is the intercessor. That He knew the Father's will. Right? He knew what God was going to do next because He told him. He explained to them that He was the judge. He explained to them that He is the final judge. Jesus was telling them who He is. The third generation church in 90 AD needed to move past who Jesus was to knowing who this Jesus is for their faith. Otherwise, 
they would be found walking away from everything. And it may seem like I, I'm just going over and over again, but, but this morning, who does our third generation say Jesus is? Think about it. Who does our third generation say Jesus is? Not who he was. Not the stories. Not the, who do they say Jesus is for them? Does their belief reflect a knowledge of who Jesus was? Or a faith in the, presence, uh, in the present of who Jesus is? That's a sobering thought to consider. Um, I think we know the answer to that. It's in verses 2 and 3 of John chapter 6. We could preach a sermon or two just on the the first couple words after these things um, in verse 1. But verse 2 says, Then a great multitude followed him because they saw his signs which he performed on those who were diseased. And Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. Here we have an important picture that, that we really need to ground ourselves in. Mark chapter 6 talked about it in verse 34, about, about Israel being sheep without a shepherd. right? And we know what that looks like, or we can only imagine there that the strays and the milling and the chaos and the confusion. But here we have an important picture that God gives us of his people, shepherdless, we know what's going on at this time, the, the religious and spiritual poverty, right? What, what, what Judaism had become about following the practices of man and all these um, man-made laws and, and you can't walk this far and you can't do this and you can't do that. Um, it was poverty. People were starving for a relationship with God. They were looking for someone to come and lead them. You had uh, Roman attacks, Right? I mean, it was, it was a place of unrest, much of what Chris and I saw over there. there there's a, a lot of unrest, maybe not safety-wise, but religiously, spiritually. You had um, Roman attacks. You've got Satan's influence. You, you can just imagine the, the havoc that devour, devouring lion is making at that time. And then you had culture oppression all on these people. And here comes Jesus on the scene, preaching a message of repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. He, he, he's teaching about the kingdom of God. And you see these people latching onto Jesus as their new Moses. Right? And then I read this picture there a couple weeks ago. These people needed to be delivered. These people needed a leader. Here's Jesus preaching with authority, graciousness, truth, compassion on them, and they're going, this is the leader that we've been looking for. Here is the, the, the new Moses, and we'll see in a second from Deuteronomy that God promised the coming prophet. They were recognizing him. Jesus had come to offer the spiritual kingdom of God. Right? We remember that message with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Do not marvel. And I say to you, you must be born again. That which is of flesh is flesh. That which is of spirit is spirit. Jesus had come to offer a personal, spiritual relationship with God. And these people needed led into that spiritual kingdom. That, that picture of that new Moses really starts to, to, to knit itself together. The Apostle John introduces us to that picture, that great multitude following him as the new Moses. Um, he, he takes advantage of this parallel as he opens this narrative. 
And we see uh, Jesus climbing that mountain in verse 3. He goes up on the mountain so the people can all see. We see Him take with Him the, the leaders, right? the elders, the people that are going to carry on His work after He's gone. Right? We see Him go up there. And then we'll see John close this narrative in verse 14 with Moses in Deuteronomy preparing the people for the promised land. Jesus came to, to offer a spiritual kingdom to Israel, kingdom to the world, right? Jesus goes up to the mountain with His elders and He closes in, in verse 14 with the, the idea that this truly is the prophet that they've been looking for. That being said, in order to get through, through to the rest of this, this narrative, we're going to have to jump over a few things. And again, I said it earlier, Verse 14 is the, the point of this passage. This isn't explaining there who Jesus was. This is who Jesus is. And yes, every point, and we've all heard lots of sermons, and, and studying this is such a, a fascinating thing, learning more about the person of God and the person of Jesus. And yes, Jesus had the multitude following Him, Right? And just make sure these details are there. 5,000 men, add women and children, closer to 10,000 people. They were discovering who Jesus is. Right? They, 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 they were looking for that leader. They were beginning to understand that the promised land, freedom from oppression, lie following this man. Right? That, that is a, a, an awesome testimony. Yes, as we read through that, Jesus tested Philip in verse 6. Bethsaida was Philip's hometown. He should know where to buy bread there just to, to, to remind them of the futility of trying to earthly understand what God wanted to do. Yes, there were five loaves. Yes, there were two fishes. Yes, we know that there was 12 baskets gathered up. Yes, even just that picture in verse 10 of seeing Jesus having His sheep sit down in green pastures on the mountainside. I mean, that would have us running back to Psalm 23. Right, the good shepherd. It, 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 yes, Jesus gave thanks to God. Right? And God did this work. They saw God do this work through the Son and He fed them just like God fed the people in the wilderness with manna from heaven. Right? We see those pictures. We see those points all through there. But how often do we get to verse 14? Right? How often... So the preachers not run out of steam by the time we get to verse 14 and we see God hammer home this crucial point. This is why Jesus is doing the sign. And where these, those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, this is truly the prophet who has come into the world. Back to my questions. Who were those men? All right, this is where it gets fun. Who were those men? You quiet your heart and you begin to ask that question. Who were those men? You begin to realize that those men right, were relatives of those getting this letter who John was writing to. Relatives or connections 60 years later going, I remember that story. I remember that narrative. I remember hearing about that. And here John is bringing that memory He's drawing it out for them, sitting in the pew. And they're looking elsewhere. Or they have children that are looking elsewhere. Or they have neighbors looking elsewhere going, how do we really know Jesus is who He says He is? And John's saying, you remember this. You remember this. Your fathers, your relatives, your connections, your countrymen said, this 
is truly the prophet who has come into the world. They said, this is who Jesus is. Settles it. Right? Settles it. Who were those men? They are relatives, connections, witnesses of those sitting in the churches hearing the gospel read. They were disciples. Right? And we'll see here in, 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 in about a chapter and a half. They were disciples following. Not necessarily believers at this point. Right? But they were following. And they were the disciples in that place of, of, of seeing these signs hearing 5,000 men say, this is the prophet, this is who Jesus is, knowing that they're going to have to make a decision here shortly. They're going to have to make a decision. Okay, this is who Jesus is or leave. It's on the line. Who were those men? These men were, were 5,000 men of Israel, spiritual leaders of homes, spiritual leaders of families, Spiritual leaders of, and teachers of children, right? These men, the way it's supposed to be. These men were seeing who Jesus is. These were spiritual leaders in their communities. These men were spiritual leaders in their towns, their cities. Coming to that place, these men, and I'm going to emphasize that again, these men come to that place of saying, this is who Jesus is. Can you imagine that? That would change everything in that little Galilee region, which isn't very big. I don't know how many people would have lived in that there, but, but all of a sudden you have 5,000 men rising up saying, this is who we've been looking for, this is who Jesus is, and I don't think that they were silent about it. Can you imagine if the men in our churches, men in our homes, men in our communities, can you imagine if they were all able to say this with confidence? This is truly the prophet who has come into the world. This, this Jesus, the red letters that I read in my Bible every morning or every, whenever you do your devotions, this is who Jesus is and He's changing my life. Can you imagine if the men could say this with confidence? The silence would be broken. Because I don't hear that today. Young man starving for it the last six years. I don't hear that today. Verse 14, what is so significant with what those men said? This is truly the prophet who has come into the world. That picture of green grass sitting in groups of 50 and 100, full bellies, right? People are always happier when they're full, <laughs> right? I just say, it, it just, they always are, right? Um, I don't think that term hangry is a new one, Okay? But you have Hebrew people sitting with their bellies full. These Hebrew people just watched Jesus do this sign. These Hebrew people knew their Scriptures. They had their Old Testament. They loved their Old Testament. They memorized their Old Testament. But these, these Hebrew people with full bellies, with their Hebrew Scriptures, they knew without a shadow of a doubt that this is who God promised. This is who, who Jesus is. This is who we've been waiting for. Fully God, fully man. I'm not sure whether they completely understood that, but God had already told them 1,500 years earlier who Jesus would be. Right? And I invite you to turn to me with me. Deuteronomy chapter 18. 
And this is the point of the sign. This is the point of the, the passage. Deuteronomy 18. Moses is preparing the people for the promised land. Right? They left Egypt. They left bondage. Um, they, they have their leader. We know that there are stumbles. We, we, we know that there's wanderings. We know that people are people. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15. Um, in that conversation, again, Moses is preparing them. Verse 15 says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren, him you shall hear. Kind of changes how you read verse 14, doesn't it? Full bellies, with the Scripture sitting on the hillsides of Bethsaida going, 1,500 years ago God said that this man was coming. He was coming. He was coming with, with His words. Verse 16, According to all you desired of the Lord your God in Horeb in the day of assembly, saying, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, nor let me see this great fire any more lest I die. <laughs> Moses on the Mount Sinai was the people's intercessor. Right? He was the advocate. He was the one that climbed the mountain and brought the words of God to the people. Prophet, advocate, intercessor, Messiah, servant of God. All these names of Jesus come out in this. Right? It was from God to the people. These people are realizing that. Verse 17, And the Lord said to me, Moses, what they have spoken is good. I will, God speaking, I will raise up for them a prophet like you, Moses, from among their brethren and will put my words in his mouth. And he shall speak to them all that I command him. And it shall be. This is kind of where the, the rubber meets the road. They could have recognized that he was the Son of God. They could have recognized that he's the prophet. And truly, this is the, the prophet come into the world. But verse 19, And it shall be that whoever will not hear my words, God speaking, which he speaks in my name, God speaking, I will require it of him. So these people sat there with full bellies, sat there recognizing that this is the prophet. They also knew God's message. They weren't going to hear Him. They weren't going to obey Him. They weren't going to follow Him. God was going to hold them accountable. Accountable. We can almost preach another sermon on that. These people not only recognized Him as the prophet come that God promised, they recognized He came with a message. This is who Jesus is. This is my son, hear Him. Right? We see in a, a reoccurring theme here. If you don't listen to Him... I am going to require it of you. Deuteronomy 18, 15-19 is where God told them who Jesus would be so that they would know who Jesus is in the present. Know and hear Him, obey Him, follow Him. Those men, the 5,000 men of, of John 6, 14, those men became believers that day when they connected by faith who they were told Jesus was going to be with who Jesus is standing before them at that, at that time, at that point. They connected who God said He was going to be with who Jesus 
is. The same way our lost generations need to move from thinking that they are saved by believing in who Jesus was, the stories that they've heard, the, the, the narratives, the flannel graphs, those are all good things, but they need to move past uh, thinking that they're saved by, by knowing who Jesus was and coming to Calvary, coming to that place of, of saying, God, this is, this is your son, this is what your son did for me. Jesus, you died for me. This is who you are. Because we're saved by placing our faith in who Jesus is. We step into that relationship and we receive that Holy Spirit and we understand who Jesus is and needs to be in my life. It's real. So what do we do about it? Can't put a challenge out there. Can't, can't talk about that sober topic without... Um, what do we do about it? And it's pretty simple, really. Same thing the Apostle John did. Right? Same thing Apostle John. Tell them who Jesus is. Tell them. It shouldn't be difficult. Not who he was, right? And yes, again, the narratives and the, the scripture is so important. That's how the Spirit works. But tell them who Jesus is in your life. How it's real. Who Jesus is to you. Take it from your Bible into your life and share with them who he is now. And I'll just close with this. I was at the store this morning, just having some chats with, with, with Kevin and, and Rhonda, and Ralph was over there, and we're talking about Bob's funeral. And I don't want to tear jerk, right? And I don't want to play on emotions. But I left with that thought, and I, and I said this. I said, it makes me think what people will say at my funeral, right? What was my testimony? How did I love God? And I thought, again, just, just to, to our missing generations and making that step from who Jesus was to who Jesus is, it's as simple as telling them who Jesus is in your life. Make it real. Don't wait until the funeral for our families to figure it out. Who is Jesus to you today? Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for these narratives, Lord. And the Word of God is, is living and powerful and, and it's the key, key to all this, Lord. And I don't in any way want to, to, to insinuate um, at all, Lord, I love Your Word. But I love how it's real. Lord, I love how it's living. I love how it explains to me what is going on in my heart, Lord, in my relationship with You. I pray that that would be a burning passion for each of us. Lord, I know it was in Bob's life, Lord. It came out over and over again. Those little books with Scripture and those notes that he would make and the conversations he would have from those verses, Lord, as to who Jesus is or was in his life. Lord, we know he understands that better now than ever. But Lord, I pray that we don't wait. Lord, I pray for that boldness. I pray for those opportunities. I pray that this would just be something that you would lay on our hearts in such a fire that we couldn't say no to it. We thank you, Lord, for your Spirit who explains to us who you are. And I thank you that our relationship is ever-present. Lord, I pray for the rest of the day 
Lord, I pray over the dinner tables that we would maybe ask those questions. We would have those times of testimony, times of growing. Lord, maybe some of it's revisiting and it's not going to be easy. Lord, I pray you help us through it, but we need to have those discussions. Make our faith real, Lord. Just pray these things in your precious name. Amen.